We are in a study on the book of John, and today we're taking a break from the study of the book of John, and I'm just telling you, here's why. I, uh, I, as I was leading up to it this week, I just didn't feel like it was ready. I just, I just felt like there was more I needed to do, some things I needed to look into that I didn't have time to, and uh, I just wanted to make, I just want to make sure I uh, do the best I can. And so we're going to just, uh, it's not really a rabbit trail because it's not even connected to it, but it's something that I think is good for us to go over occasionally in our lives. And I'm going to talk about the cost of idolatry. We're going to look at springboard from Exodus 32. But one of the things I was thinking about this uh, a while back, not too long ago, you've probably seen all these headlines of how Americans are becoming less and less religious. And one of the things that was interesting that, that, that one of the articles I, I read, because they went into the data very heavily, and what it was is that people were saying they don't worship like they used to, or they don't worship anymore. And so they were saying Americans seem to be worshiping less and less. And I want to tell you, I I mean, I respect the people who do this kind of work and do all this data crunching and all that kind of stuff, but they're wrong. Americans all still worship. It's what they're worshiping that is changing in our culture. That how they express it is changing in our culture because people are made to worship. Human beings are made to worship. We have always worshiped. It's just what's the object of our worship and what's the cost of worshiping the thing, particular thing that we choose to worship because all across this country, all over the world, there are people at desks in homes or in cubicles, in offices, in shops, in businesses, And something about that has become something that gives them ultimate worth and personal identity. And therefore, they're worshiping. They're willing to sacrifice, give the best of their time, the best of their effort, the best of their emotions, the best of their well-being, even sometimes the best of their families, for what they do for a living. And so then that situation, that place, that desk, that cubicle, that becomes their place of worship. There's other buildings that become a place of worship. There's some buildings that have a big safe and people bring there and offer, bring offerings of money every, all the time, right? And it becomes their identity. It becomes their security. And it's, it becomes a place of worship. It's a God they sacrifice for. There's a number of buildings not far from here where there's lots of mirrors on the walls and the priests and the priestesses dressed in spandex and leotards. And around the first of the year, people get super religious in this type of worship and they show up regularly and then it kind of peters off and peters off until until that same place that was crowded January the 3rd, you go on February the 25th and there's no one there, right? That's a place sometimes people go because they worship their appearance. We see people who struggle with how we're told our body is supposed to look. You know, there's a TV show that, uh, that literally, I was doing some research, literally spun off hundreds of copycat shows because it's, it, it pricked something in our nation and, and all over the world. And it was a show that was about talent and it was called, interestingly, American Idol, right? And now... You, every night of the week on your TV, there is something that has spun off of American Idol that's some sort of a talent, that's some sort of this, that same kind of idea. 
Why? Because people get so wrapped up in that and people begin to worship. Certain things were made for it. We, we have to do this. We offer sacrifices because that's how we are made. We look for the blessed life somewhere. It's what we desperately seek. Now, in ancient Israel, they had these idols. They were, they were huge. They were, they were statues oftentimes. They were, sometimes were gigantic. Sometimes most people had household idols all around them. And so today, and, and so it's a little bit different. They worshiped a very physical thing that they saw right before their eyes. And so idol worship has changed some. It's gotten a little more sneaky, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And so then we come to the idea of, okay, so what is idolatry? And we're going to look at that. How do I know what my potential idols are? We're going to look at that because we all have them. Why does the Bible make such a big deal about idolatry? And what are the costs of it? Because it was, the ancient world was full of it, and our world is full of it. You know, in the ancient world, we know one, we read a lot about in the, in the Old Testament, we read about Baal, and he was the god of, of uh, uh, fertility. He was the god who brought rain to, to, to make crops grow. He was the god that helped families grow. And so Baal was a very important god, because if you live in a society where people live basically hand-to-mouth, crop yields are incredibly important because of the difference between eating and not eating. And so when you get in those kind of situations, oftentimes you will do anything, anything, to make sure you have enough to eat, to make sure your family has enough to eat. And Baal was in charge of that. Baal was uh, the, the female opposite of him, who was his consort, was Ashtaroth, the, uh, the uh, goddess. And oftentimes, Ashtaroth had temples where there was cultic prostitution going on. Why? To make sure crops grew, to make sure um, people had babies. And people would literally do anything. Even to the point we know Israel got involved in child sacrifice because they believed this was the key to their life being safer, more comfortable, Marduk was the leading god of the, the Babylonian pantheon. Uh, pantheon, I should say. He was the lord over rain. He was, he was a lot. He was the biggest one. He was troops and war. And interestingly enough, I don't know how this, he's, he's the lord of rain. He's the lord of troops. He's the lord of war. And he's the god of accounting. And I don't know how that worked out, right? Except that right now, everybody here who's involved in accounting is like, yes, we are important, Right? Every April 15th, they would sacrifice a god to Marduk, right? Kind of like what we do. And Dagon was the god of the Philistines, their god of war. And then we have an interesting passage in the Old Testament when the Ark of the Covenant is brought and Dagon falls on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant and just everything that's involved in that. So everybody had idols. Everybody had these ideas. They had personal things and physical things that they looked to for meaning and purpose in life. They looked to for well-being, and they would make them usually very large to this idea of beauty and grandeur and how powerful they are. And one way they would make them, like a, maybe a, a guy would make an idol. The idol would be, when it was first made, it's, it's, it's powerless. It has nothing. And then they would perform a ceremony, a ceremony of empowerment. And then suddenly the idol's eyes would be open, the mouth would speak, the idol now had power to affect things on this earth. And we, that was happened all throughout the world. We see this happening even in the Bible. We see this in the Old Testament. In uh, 
when we get to Moses at Mount Sinai because people would make idols because what they needed was this. They needed something to give them what they wanted. See, it was all about getting what I want from these gods to help my life. So you see, we have to understand this is very key with idols. It's all about me. That's what's key. It's always all about me. And in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. All right? So, so they're, they're worried. Moses has gone up and he's been a while. Now remember this. When it is all about you, the one thing you don't want to do is wait. That's the one thing we're not good at, right? We're not good at waiting. I want what I perceive is my need. I want it now. I need it now. I can't live without it now. One time, one of my grandkids came to visit, and he left his favorite animal. And... Uh, my daughter called from her house and said, he left the animal. He left little whatever, Popey or Pocky or whatever the name of the animal was. I can't remember. And I could hear him in the background. I can't live without it. Right? So I said, I'll bring him. I'll bring it to him because he needs it right now. He's enslaved me, that child has. Um, because I want what I want right now. This is what happens to us with idols. And so the people of Israel, like Moses, has been gone a long time. We need something now, something we can see, something we can worship. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. He created this calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. What is, it, what is he doing? This is, this is words that they would use for an activation and an empowering ceremony. For He made a golden calf, and he said, tomorrow we're gonna, this calf is going to become a god. Same thing, that, same thing that, that other people do. That must have broke God's heart. And so Moses comes down, and he comes down with these commandments, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, you talk about an embarrassing moment of timing. They're prohibited from idolatry as they're in the middle of it. And Moses sees his brother in, at the front of all of this. And his brother says, do not be angry, my Lord. Aaron answered, you know how prone these people are to evil. Boy, there we go. There's a bus being people being thrown under, right? They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I throw it in the fire and it, out came this calf, Right? <laughs> In the, in the words of the immortal theologian, Curly, what a dink! You know, he just makes it. He, and, I, and I love this because Moses, Moses comes down and Aaron realizes, I've really screwed up. I've really screwed up. And he goes, but she, those people. He's just imitating Adam, right? The woman you gave me, right? Those people, you know how bad they are. They're going to kill me, right? So this is what I did. And oh, how, how amazing. See, None of us want to, and here Aaron's doing it, he doesn't want to be thought of as an idolater. And, and when, for us, we think, well, I don't bow down to statues. 
But see, there's, there's this internal idolatry that we can struggle with. Ezekiel talks about this. These men, these people have set up idols in their hearts. See, it's not something outside. That, it's, not, it's, it's in here. This is where it's so key. This is why over and over in Scripture, we hear God saying, I want your heart. I want your heart. You can do all kinds of good things, <clears throat> but I want your heart because that's the key. So the real problem isn't the statue. It's, it's there's an idol in the heart. And idolatry is when I take anything that isn't God and I put it where God belongs. That's what idolatry is. Anything that I'm hoping will give me power and authority and meaning and purpose and stuff. And you can make it that way. Paul illustrates this beautifully, you know, in, in, our, in, our, in our New Testament. Most of the times, the word that is translated lust in your New Testament is, is a word, epithuimo. i got to make sure I say that right because it's epithumeo. Epithumeo. Thumeo is a desire, a longing. Epi is where we get the word epic. Epi means an over. And it's, it's, it's great. It's magnified. So epithumeo is a desire that has become gigantic or it's gotten out of control. And so Paul is teaching us that's what lust is. It's desire that has lost its proper constraints. It's gotten out of control. Now, we tend to think of lust as a sexual thing, but, and, and it is, but biblically it means so many other things. It means a desire, maybe a commitment to a job that begins to cause suffering within my family. Well, it's become an epi-desire, an over-desire. It's gotten too big. It's taken God's place. You know, a desire, and you can put it in so many different ways. It's a desire that has grown and become overabundant, too big, epic. And the problem for us is oftentimes we don't think that we struggle with idols until something happens that actually begins to reveal an idol because prosperity and comfort tends to mask them. But a crisis often reveals idols. As long as things are going well in my life, I don't think I have that much of a problem. But when things go bad, all of a sudden, it can become very uh, obvious and evident. And so it's a given that we have a problem. But then the thing is, okay, so what could it be? What are the things that are the biggest rival to God in my life? What can they be? And it can be thousands of things. There's some obvious ones. These are some of the obvious ones. Potential items, money. Because money can become so important to us that we think I can't be happy without it. In Colossians 3.5, Paul identifies greed as a form of idolatry, the desire for more and more money. Second thing can be just, just this desire for success. It's not wrong to want to be successful. We are people. We are people who, that's how we're made, so that we can be successful and accomplish things. God wants us to do that. But when that becomes an epi, an over-desire, and it becomes what I live for, it can become an idol. Looking like or being, I'm, I was trying to think how to say this, looking like you're smart or being very smart can become something that, that, we can allow to become a big thing in our lives. 
Do you ever hear anybody brag about their degrees or the amount of education that they have? That's what's going on there. Attractiveness is an obvious one in our culture. We can spend a lot of money. We can actually go through physical pain to look better. Another one that I think is a little more subtle, though, is relationship. See, we talk about money. We talk about success. We talk about being smart. We talk about attractiveness. Those are obvious. But relationship or relationships can become an idol. I can put a person that I have a relationship with in a position that they shouldn't be in. I can put them up higher than they should be. I ran, a, I ran across this a while back. It's the title of a book, and I think it's pretty clever. If you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? And I thought, now there's a book I'd be interested in reading, I think. <laughs> and then I found out that it's become a song. If you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? And I'm thinking, it's got to be, that sounds like a country western song to me, right? I mean, we just strum that guitar and just say, just play. if you can't live without me, why aren't you dead yet? Because what happens, we, we put another person, oftentimes in terms of relationships, we put a person in a place that we make them almost like God, and they can't do it. That is the worst thing you can do to, to someone that you love dearly, is to put them on a pedestal that they can, they're just doomed to fail. Because even the people you love the most, they fail you. You fail them. Struggles come. And suddenly you begin to realize, man, this, this was an idol for me. Because you put someone where only God should be. Uh, another one is pleasure, or we could say comfort. We're obsessed with that. We are oriented around self-gratification, about self-medicating to escape things, negative feelings. Oftentimes, they can become so painful, they can rule someone's life. Interestingly, sometimes church or church kind of stuff can become an idol. This is, this is the problem the Pharisees had. They were so devoted, and they put it on such a pedestal, and they wrapped everything up around doing and looking and being morally perfect. And we have to be careful about that. Work is obviously one, and the list can go on and on and on. We struggle in other areas. But here's the deal. Let's think about this because one of the things is we can talk about these things. Oftentimes, I've talked in groups. I've, I've taught in class and stuff like that. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, Bob, that is right. Yeah, good, yes, I'm with you. But what we stop at is we don't stop, stop and go, okay, well, where do I struggle? Self-diagnosis. This is so key because this is a part of what I call self-awareness, the ability the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes and try to feel what they feel and not let what you feel influence it. That, that, and it's, it's hard. I mean, it doesn't always work for, out well, well for us. But it's this idea of being able to step outside myself and look at myself and, and look at myself honestly and critically. So here's some ideas of those things, and, and there's others. Which do I feel myself thinking about the most? What occupies your mind the most? Because our idols are things we tend to daydream about. And we think about them a lot. So what do you think about the most? Which would you fear losing the most? Which of those things would you feel like, if I lost that, life might not be worth living? That would crush me. That would crush me. Which gives you a sense of identity? Which, which you say, okay, because I have this, it makes me somebody. It's my, it's my identity. 
which makes me feel most secure? Because I have this. Uh, and you get that sometimes, you know, when you think if I had that, that would solve all my problems. That would solve so much. So you're, what's happening? That, that's a potential idol. Which of these do you want to be known for? This would be success. This would be people would look up to me. You know, money or, 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 or education. You know, how smart you are. Different things like that. Education can be a huge one for some people. Sometimes, one time somebody asked me, um, one of the, a CNU student years ago said, you know, I'm interested in maybe going to the ministry. I was just wondering, what, what's your, what is your, edu- your, your CV? What's your educational track record? Where'd you go? And it was a real, that was a struggle for me for a moment because here's, here's the truth of what happened. I went to college and I was just kind of a lazy bum. And so then I, I went to seminary and I flunked out. And then I went to the University of Maryland's grad school and after a few classes, I got bored and I quit. Then I got married. Then I went to grad school again. And they just said, looking at your record, we're not real hopeful here. So you're on probation for as long as you attend this school. (laughs) You're like on eternal probation at this. But the worst thing that happened, not the worst thing, this was the best thing, is I was married and my wife looked at me and said, I am not working to put you through school for you to screw around. The day you bring home less than a B, I quit my job. Now, I wish I could tell you I studied really hard out of my love for the Word of God. I wish I could tell you that my deep relationship with Jesus empowered me to study and for the first time in my life, graduate with honors. But it wasn't. It was the fear of my wife. That's what did it. There was a couple of times people said, let's go do this, let's do that. I said, no, man, I got to study. I got to study. And I'm so thankful that she did that. Because she was like, I know you can do this. You're just a lazy bum. And so, bam, she, she gave me a lesson. See, so when somebody asked me, what, what's your CV? You know, what's, what's, your, what's your record? I was like, <laughs> nah, don't worry about it. I don't want to talk about it. Why? Because it's embarrassing. When you look at those eight things or these things we talked about, and maybe there's more, what makes me the happiest when I have lots of it? What makes me the saddest when I have, don't have much? And then, I think this is a good one. If you could talk to someone who would just be honest with you that knows you pretty well, what would they say your potential idol is? What would someone who knows you say? Because sometimes it's hard for us. And then, which, which one do I sacrifice the most for? Now, listen, I understand. You know, I, I can see this, this, there, there are the extremes of some of these things we talk about that we can say, well, what about this? Or what about this? You know, Bob, what if your wife died? Oh, you would be fine? No, of course not. No, of course not. But my life with Jesus Christ is more than my life with any other thing or any other person. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it has to be for it to function right. And so all of these things, we look at it, They can tell us, they can point us in this direction. But this is is what God says. Oh, I had all these things. Look, I did that. 
and I forgot to do that for you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. This is why God makes such a big deal about it. And here's why. Because misplaced love leads to disaster in our lives. It's not that God is sitting there going, you're not worshiping me, I'm so angry at you. Now, we should worship him. He's God. He deserves our honor. He deserves our glory. But God's going, no, don't you understand? This is going to kill you. This is going to wreck you. This misplaced love, this putting things in, their, in, their, in the wrong place. He says, listen, Israel, listen, God's people. Love the Lord. That's first. No other idols. No, nothing before me. Because idolatry is misplaced love. And what will it cost me? First of all, it will cost you God's purpose in your life. When I embraced God, when I, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, it set me on a new path. It changed me completely. It was revolutionary in my life. It was a process. But looking back, I can see the incredible changes God has done because his agenda begins to come first. And when idols become important, I begin to push his agenda back. I push his purpose for me out of my mind. Why? Because idols have no agenda for you except service. You know, in those days, in Israel's days, all these idols, they had no moral code. There were moral codes. There was the code of Hammurabi, which was a kind of a, a first big code of law that was put together. And it, it wasn't very good, but it was the first kind of thing. But all these idols, they didn't say, okay, you know, you need to do... They, it was just all about money and service and getting things from them. They were morally... They didn't care, right? In fact, most of the idols were as morally bankrupt as people. They were just like people. They got into all kinds of trouble. So you got this idea that people know there's right and wrong. You got this idea of these idols that demand service, but they're totally disconnected. They don't overlap. They're not joined in any way. And in this little, this little group of people called the nation of Israel, they come and they go, no, no, you got it all wrong. There's only one God, and he is incredibly interested in your moral life. That's so important. And it blended them. There's nothing like it in those days. This was so new. These two things are connected, right and wrong. Justice, good and evil, are connected with worshiping a God. And so we see in Micah 6, 6 through 8, and what with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So what is, what is Micah saying there? He's saying, look, this is what the gods demand of you. They demand, they demand sacrifices. They demand expensive sacrifices. They demand your firstborn son. The demands never stop. The, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What? Those are moral issues. 
Those are things that involve relationships with people and mankind. Why? Because every single person, and we go over this so many times, every single person in the world, every single person you meet every day of your life, you bump into people and you look at them, and that is a person who is created in the image of God. They have an incredible worth based on that fact alone. There are no throwaway people. There are no people anywhere in the world that we say, oh, well, they don't affect us. I don't care about them. We can't, can't do that. He says, I want you, this is, this is it. Here it is. Did God ask them to have sacrifices? Yes, he did ask them to have sacrifices. Why? Because those sacrifices pointed to something. They pointed to the fact that we are sinful beings and sins require something. When, 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 when someone hurts someone, a debt is incurred and a debt has to be paid. Our sins require something. And they sacrificed an animal once a year to cover the sins. And they knew it was temporary. They knew the day after that sacrifice, the sins started accruing again. And God kept pointing to his son who would come and take care of those sins forever. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that's what Jesus Christ did for you. He took care of your sins forever when you accept him as your savior. You receive eternal life, life with God for the rest of your life, starting now for the rest of your life. And so we have this idea now suddenly that these things are connected. Everything's important to God. Nothing in your life does not matter to God. That's so radical. That's so radical. And so when we get into putting other things ahead of God, it gets things out of place. Another, another cost... It, it, when you have an idol, it will exhaust you. If you dedicate your life to something, it will run you into the ground. Because the, what do idols require? Thou shalt perform. You shall do this. Bring me this. And we feel this. This happens to us. We feel it at school. We feel it at work. We feel it at home. Our kids feel it. I got to have a perfect home with decor and color and feng shui that expresses my inner beauty. I got to have perfect children who play perfect t-ball and go to perfect schools and marry perfect spouses. I got to have a perfect marriage that's celebrated for its casual elegance. I have to have a perfect career kept in perfectly manageable boundaries with a perfectly balanced schedule. I have to have perfect appearance with a perfect wardrobe under a perfect haircut or style with perfect volunteer involvement and perfect church participation. And if anybody thinks I'm not perfect, even God thinks I'm not perfect, then I have to work so hard to prove them I am. And then what happens? People rebel against these ideas that society sets up, that false idols set up. And what do they do? They just set them up in another way. I saw this a while back. It was a, a guy, he was talking to like five teens who just had the most perfect mohawks. And he was just like, dude, your hairstyle, why do you guys wear your hair that way? And they all go, to be different, that's why. See, what have they done? They'd rebelled against, well, you're supposed to do this. They'd rebelled against it, and they set up their own idols, and they're all following it. It's what we do. So the people are saying, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be radical, and I'm going to have all my friends who are different and radical just like me. And we all follow the same idol. That's why they call it the rat race. This performance idea, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. 
That's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, all you who are burdened. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest from that. You don't have to do that. Why, what was he talking about? He's talking about an idol problem. The last cost of idols, because idols don't have what you need the most. This is the key. Only God has what we need the most. Only God can give us that. You know, I was um, looking at a thing. I, I was reading a thing I was, uh, about people who are sports fans. And this guy, he was just writing, you know, he says, you know where this word fans comes from? It's, it's a Latin. It comes from the Latin. It comes from the Latin word fanaticus, which means someone who's crazy or insane. And it comes from the, also the word phantom, which means temple. Isn't that interesting? I saw online a while ago a Denver Broncos fan was at the game in a packed Mile High Stadium, and he noticed a guy. He'd seen him come a lot of times, but his, he was there, but the seat next to him was empty, and there's always somebody in that seat. And so he, he went down to him and said, hey, you're, you're by yourself. You know, what, what's going on? He goes, yeah, this is my wife's seat. Um, we, she came with me. We, we, we've been watching games for 30 years, and, uh, and now she's, she's died. And the guy said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, it's too bad you couldn't have got someone else you know, a relative, someone to come with you to the game. And the guy said, oh, no, they're all at the funeral. It's kind of funny, but then you think, it's kind of sad. <laughs> it's kind of sad, too, isn't it? It's that idea that we worship. One of the Roman gods, Bologna, which I'm hoping we get the word baloney from, but I don't think so. Um, her, Because one of the one of the highlights of the temple worship for Bologna was that her followers would come in and they'd begin to cut themselves to prove how serious they were in, in worshiping her and, uh, and believing that all this blood would get them into a frenzy and then they would go and their armies would go off and be victorious in war. They would give their blood for their God. And they weren't always victorious right? The Roman legions didn't all come back. Rome ultimately crumpled because your idol doesn't care. Idolatry is a form of insanity. And there's never been an idol. There have been all kinds of idols pitched with, with tridents and swords and animals. And but there's never been an idol on a cross. There's never been an idol that says, I'll die for you. Not you die for me, I'll die for you. And that's what Jesus Christ did. An idol can't give you what you need most. Idols have no power to make your life whole after it's been broken to pieces. An idol does not have grace. And that's what we need. And Jesus is inviting people to give up on their idols and to follow him. He's inviting Christians to assess their lives and say, am I, am I walking on a path that I shouldn't be walking on? He's inviting people who don't know Jesus to come to know him and experience the grace and the rest that he can give. Because he alone has the wisdom and the knowledge and the power to be in charge of my life. He's the only one who knows what I was made for and what you were made for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for lessons from history as we look back on the Israelites and their struggles with following you. 
And Lord, help us not to repeat those mistakes. Help us to be people who put you, put you first and let everything else orient itself around you. And in doing that, that's where we find the most peace. In a, in a world where we are full, people are full of anger and disappointment and frustration, 